Good morning. As Bevan said, my name is Ethan, and I'm the kids pastor here, and we are in the middle of this series called R-Rated. Now, the R in R-Rated stands for restricted, and we've been looking at what God has restricted and why. Uh, Today, we're going to tackle the question of how to raise kids in a culture that is increasingly R-Rated. That is, a culture that really hesitates to place restrictions on things that are harmful. Uh, Now, if you have kids, or if you've even really spent much time around kids, then you understand this connection between restrictions and the prevention of harm. So this is this is my family here. You can see we are a young family. Uh, My oldest, Millie, here is three, then Claire is two, Richard's one, and then baby number four is on the way. We're expecting number four in September. So the the young, growing Johnstone family. Um, With our kids, we have restrictions in place for the prevention of their harm. And I thought I could tell you about one of those restrictions, or my daughter Millie could tell you about one of them. So here is Millie telling you about a Johnstone family restriction. So what is this right here? Yeah. And are you allowed to touch it? No. Why not? Get born, then I would have to go to the hospital. Yeah. Why would you have to go to the hospital? Because the doctor would have to attack me. Yeah. It would hurt to get burned, huh? Yeah. yeah. And it hurt you, yeah. So honestly, the reason that my daughter Millie knows so much about the procedure for after being burned is last year I destroyed my hand taking a pizza out of the oven, and we went to the hospital. So she knows that, that rule pretty well. Um, but, uh, but this is a clear boundary that we have in place for our kids, um, and if it's crossed, then they're exposed to harm. Another restriction that we have in our family is that our kids are not allowed to lie. So the consequence of lying, obviously, is maybe less immediate than that of the stove, but we know that if over time our, our girls and our, and our son develop a pattern of lying, then things aren't going to go as well for them in the long run. They're going to experience some hardship and heartache as a result of that. However, if they can learn to be truthful, then things are going to go much better for them in the long run. So when we as parents establish restrictions like these for our children, we're actually following an example that God has set in the Bible and that we can read about. And so we're going to take a look at that here in a minute in Deuteronomy chapter 5. This is a passage just before, the chapter just before the main passage we'll be looking at today. And the setting here is that God has used Moses to take the people of Israel out of slavery in Egypt. And he's taking them, taking them to the promised land. But instead of going directly into the promised land, they disobey God and end up spending 40 years just wandering around in the wilderness. And so now, here um, in the book of Deuteronomy, the 40 years is finally over. They're about to enter into that promised land. And Moses is giving them instructions from God about how they are to live in that land. And so here's what Moses says about those instructions in chapter 5, verse 33. He says, You shall walk in all the way that the Lord your God has commanded you, that you may live and that it may go well with you, and that you may live long in the land that you shall possess. So God is giving them these commandments, and and the reason for that we read right here. It's very clear. It's that it may go well with you. The commands are that it may go well. 
And from here, Moses will transition to start talking about raising the next generation to also walk in God's commands, obey his restrictions. And the reason for that is the same, so that just like their parents, the next generation, uh, so that it will also go well for them. Um, And so now then we get into our main passage for the day, which is uh, Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 and 5. So let me read that, begin reading that for us. It starts off, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Now the phrase here, the Lord is one, it means the Lord is alone. It means that God is not one of many gods. Um, It means that he's one of one. And this is the foundation on which every commandment that God sets in place for Israel will rest. You see, if God is one, then his words, they're not just good suggestions. They're not one option among many options for their consideration. If God is one, then his words are true. If God is one, then he is the one who sits above every culture from then until now and says what is true and what is valuable. If God is one, then if he says, don't touch the stove, it will burn you, then guess what? The stove will burn you. If God is one, then his restrictions and his commandments are actually anchored in reality. And that's a reality that he himself designed. Now, frequently throughout Israel's history, they would stray from this idea of God is one. You see, all the cultures around them, all the nations around them were God is many nations. They were polytheists. They worshiped many gods. And so it was often um, politically and economically just expedient for Israel to get on board with the idea that God is many so that they could get what they want. We also live in a God is many culture. The idea that God is many or the, even the idea that God is just, God is everything is a much more popular and a much more culturally convenient stance to take in the time in which we're living. Popular sentiment is that God, God is really, he's, he's whatever you want him to be. <clears throat> um, my idea about God is true. Your idea about God is true. That guy's idea about God is true. But if all of our gods are true or if, or if everything is a form of God, then there are really no rational restrictions that should be placed on our lives beyond those which seem best to us at the time in our present mood. Now for Israel, there's a phrase that the Bible used to describe a time when they strayed away from God is one and got tangled up in God is is many. And that phrase, I think it applies well to our time also, is everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Uh, Time and time again throughout Israel's history, they found that when everyone does what is right in his own eyes, when God's restrictions are just thrown aside, the result is pain. It causes pain. And never was that pain isolated to a single generation. It always impacted the later generation and, and often even beyond that. Now, another twist on God is one that is prevalent today is God is none. There is no God. And so this is not the majority of majority view of individuals in our culture, but it is a very dominant view, especially when it comes to higher education and to the media, two major influences on shaping the next generation. And even for many who claim, who profess to believe that 
God, God is one, they actually live out and they step in line with this idea that God is none. You see, God is none is, a, is also a more popular and culturally convenient stance to take. And what we find is that if we reject God, then of course, it's very easy to reject his restrictions as well. And once again, we can do whatever is right in our own eyes. We can, we can get what we want. So these are the prevalent views of God in our culture. And really, the downstream flow of our culture is represented by these. God is many. God is none. And for our children, getting swept up in these views is really as simple as just not paddling. It takes no effort to get caught up in the current. So the river of, God's cult- uh, the river of our culture is flowing steadily away from God as one. And our objective in the middle of that is to teach our children not only that God is one, but to guide them to love God with all of their heart, with all of their soul, and with all of their might. So it seems, it seems kind of daunting, um, but I, I, the reason I describe our culture in this way is not just to, to raise, our, raise our blood pressure or to you know, promote a sense of hopelessness about the next generation, but really because we need to ask the question, um, how? How do we raise children who love God with our heart, soul, and might in the context of this culture, the culture that God has placed us in. And it's actually, it's actually really encouraging to me, and I hope this is encouraging to you as well, that we're not the first group of people in history who have had to ask that. Our, our culture isn't the first challenging culture, and we're not the first ones to have to answer this question. This question has been asked by Jews in exile. It's been asked by persecuted Christians in Rome. It's been asked more recently behind the Iron Curtain, and it's been asked by first-generation Christians in China. So we're not the first ones to tackle this question, and and that's an encouragement to me. And so today, to tackle that question, to try to get some some traction on this idea, we're going to take a look at the next two verses of our passage here in Deuteronomy. So as we do that, we're going to see two things. We're going to see two roles and two tasks. So I'm going to read here now from verses 6 and 7. This is what we see. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart, and you shall teach them diligently to your children. So here Moses is speaking to all, all the congregation of Israel, to all of Israel, and he's talking to them about raising the next generation to love and obey God. The phrase starts off, this whole passage starts off with hero Israel. So he's talking to the whole group. The whole community is concerned with, should be concerned with raising a godly generation. And that's similar for us today. Everyone in this room, everyone who's a part of the church has an interest and has a concern with the next generation. But while we all have an interest in raising a godly generation, we don't all have the same role. There are different roles. And the first role that we're going to look at is that of primary responsibility. And that one falls with parents. So notice what comes next here in the next, uh, the next verse. It says, You shall teach them diligently to your children, that is God's commands, and you shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise. So when should you talk of God's words and his commands? Well, in the morning, when you get up, when you have breakfast, when you travel, when you eat dinner, when you go to bed. What this passage is doing is it's zeroing in on, uh, on the home, on the con- training children to follow God's word in the context of the home, in the context of the family. It shows the great responsibility that parents have for training their children to follow God. And it's really hard to read this passage and conclude that 
the full extent of a parent's responsibility for teaching their children God's word is to take them to church once a, once a week. Now what the Bible says, the Bible says this about the responsibility of parents, and what the Bible says we also really know intuitively. Uh, if you have had the privilege of holding your little one, holding your own child in your arms, then you understand the weight of this responsibility. Here is a, here's a picture of my second born, Clara, Clara, and I'm holding her right after she's been born. You can see right here, I'm kind of holding her and kind of protecting her from Millie, who's going for her eye. It's, they always go for the eyes, so got to pr- hold that back. Um, but if you've been in this spot before, uh, then you understand that in this moment, I don't need to be convinced. I don't need to be intellectually convinced that I'm responsible for Clara, and not just for putting a roof over her head or for feeding her, providing food, but for teaching her and training her to love God with her heart, her soul, and her might. So God's word says it, and we know it intuitively, but there seems to be a disconnect between those things and what we actually do. And we see that um, there's some research on that. George Barna has shown, he's a researcher, he shows that nearly nine out of ten parents of young children believe that they have primary responsibility to teach their children about religious beliefs and spiritual matters. So there's our phrase right there, primary responsibility. Now despite this, research also shows that the majority of parents will spend zero time during a typical week discussing religious matters or studying religious materials with their children. However, two out of three of them will go to church at least once a month, and they will more often than not take their children with them. So the consensus seems to be that I am responsible, yes, I am responsible for my child's spiritual growth, but I'm going to fulfill that responsibility by exposing my child to religious matters at church. And when we take this attitude, we're really, we're not only passing on a God-given responsibility, we're also passing on a God-given privilege. God has given parents the privilege of influence. No one else has a greater potential to influence your children than, than you do, and no one has a greater potential to influence my kids than, than I do. So, you know, if you, if you come to church, if a family comes to church every, uh, about, as, about as often as a typical family, then their child will spend about 40 hours throughout the course of that year in church. Uh, during that same year, the typical child will also spend about 3,000 hours with their parents. Now, obviously, so for some of us, it's going to be more than 3,000. For some of us, it's going to be less. But typically, it's going to be about 40 hours at church in a year and about 3,000 with parents. And so, to just kind of, for, for perspective on that, let's say that this row of chairs right here represents the amount of time that Uh, a child will spend at church during a year. If that's the case, then proportionally, the amount of time that a parent will spend with that child could be represented by every single chair in this auditorium, every single chair in this room, even the the, ones under the blue stuff. We can include those as well. So parents have, have the greatest opportunity, the most time, the most opportunity to influence their child, their children. Uh, Now, please don't hear me say that this first row is unimportant. Uh, the church is very important. Those 40 hours are, are, are very important. But what happens at home is more important than what happens at church. See, the, the idea is that God, God, is, God is many, God is none. These are powerful voices in our culture. 
And, and we would be foolish to underestimate them. And 40 hours a year is going to really struggle to make a dent against those voices for our children. So why do you think it is that as parents, we tend to gravitate toward outsourcing the responsibility for teaching our children God's word? I, I can tell you one reason that I don't think it is. I don't think it's that, you know, there are a bunch of dads out there thinking about how can they get more time to play golf? You know, maybe busy schedule. How can I get more time to play golf? I know what I'll do. I will stop teaching my child about God's word so that I can make my tea time. I, I don't think that that's happening. I don't think people are deciding, I'm going to have someone else teach my child about God so that I can have more time just to, just to do whatever I want. I don't think that's the main thing. In fact, the, the research that we looked at earlier, this is what it concluded. It said, parents are not so much unwilling to provide more substantive training to their children as they are ill-equipped to do so. So it's less of an unwillingness and more being ill-equipped. And this is actually the same reason why I don't repair my own car when it has a problem. Uh, if my car has a problem, I'll, I'll look up under the hood, and if it's pretty straightforward, I'll take care of it myself. But more often than not, what happens is I begin looking into it, and I discover that I either lack sufficient know-how, I don't have the, the knowledge to diagnose and fix the problem, or my garage is just doesn't have enough tools in it. It doesn't have the right tools. And so I can't fix the problem. So what do I do? For lack of resource, I outsource. And that's really not that big of a deal when it comes to my car. The, the consequence of outsourcing work on my car is a couple hundred bucks or, or something like that. When it comes to training a child in God's word, the consequences of outsourcing can be much more significant. It can be more costly. And this is where the second role comes in. And that is of primary support. The second role is that of primary support, and it's provided by the church. It's provided by you. Now, when it comes to my car, there's one thing that can change my need to outsource, and that is if I know a guy. If I know a guy, the guy who, you know, knows everything about cars, who always has grease under his fingernails, the kind of guy that I secretly wish that I was, and maybe someday I'll be him, but right now I'm not. Uh, if I know that guy then I can go a lot farther in fixing my own vehicle. Because what, what is jargon to me in, a, in an owner's manual or, or when I watch a YouTube video and it just doesn't make sense, what's jargon to me is a solution to him. He can, he can see the problem. He knows what needs to be done. Not only that, but he also has the garage to go with it. He has the tools that are needed to fix the job. Now, when we... Um, Now, Christ dispenses his resources through the church. And just like, just like with that guy, if I'm going to get his help, then two things need to be in place. First of all, I need to actually have a relationship with him. I'm not going to go ask somebody that I don't have a relationship with to help me out, help me fix my car. That's just, that's just not something that guys do. Um, and second, he needs to actually be willing to help me out. It isn't enough for me to just want his help. He needs to actually be willing to give it. And so Christ dispenses his resources through the church. And similarly, for parents to receive sufficient resources for raising godly children, they need to have relationships with people in the church. And the people in the church, on the flip side, need to be willing to make themselves available to be a support to parents. And supporting parents doesn't mean that everybody needs to sign up to teach toddlers, work in the nursery, or 
work with junior hires. That's, that's not what it means at all. It also doesn't mean that you need to have successfully parented children in order to support parents. We're, we're all of us who are part of the church, whether you've raised kids or not, you're a part of the support team. What is really required is taking steps to build relationships, not just with parents and not just with kids, but with families, to build relationships with families in the church. Now, if you are maybe a high schooler or, or a young adult or, or a young married, then you have an opportunity to make an incredible impact on kids in this church. Uh, you have the opportunity to be someone who reinforces what a child's parents are teaching her. You know, her parents might tell her something a hundred times. You're going to say it once using the exact same words, and it's going to click for her. And it's completely not fair, but that's okay. I think parents are still grateful for that. Uh, it's, a, it's a team effort there. Uh, Rachel Ringer is someone here at Seabreeze who Millie, my, my three-year-old daughter, just thinks is awesome. She loves Rachel. It's because re- Rachel talks to her, and even more importantly, she listens to her and just engages with her. And for my, for my wife and I, that's, that's such an incredible blessing. And right now, Millie's three. We hope that when she's 13, she still thinks that Rachel is awesome. We, Rachel is the kind of person we want in her life, influencing her, reinforcing the things that we're teaching our kids, and, uh, and just being another, another voice saying the same things that we're saying, talking about the things that God's value. So if, if that's you, if, if, you're, if you're a young, young adult or young married high schooler, you have an incredible opportunity to bless families in this church just by showing an interest in their kids and by finding out what the parents' goals are for their kids and, and doing little things to support that. If you're, if you're currently parenting kids, then you're in the trenches right now, and you have an opportunity to be a mutual support, a mutual encouragement to other parents. You also can create opportunities for your children to spend time together so that your kids, your children can be around friends and can have friends whose parents are also training them to value the things that God values. You know, especially as children grow, grow older, and peer relationships become more and more important. They look more and more to their peers for influence. This, the need for friends who also value the things that God values is, is more and more important. And if you're past the age of raising kids, then you have seen some life, and you can be a tremendous help to young families like mine who are trying to figure out how to apply God's word at each new stage of our family that we enter. But none of this is going to happen unless you invest in relationships with families in the church. So those are the two roles that of primary support or primary responsibility and primary support. And now we're going to head back to our passage and we're going to see two tasks. The first we read about here in verse 6. Verse 6 says this, And these words that I command to you today shall be on your heart. So the task here is to walk in God's word. What is in our hearts determines our decisions, and our decisions determine our actions. The Bible says that whatever is on our hearts on the inside is going to come out in our actions on the outside. So this call to have God's word on our heart, it's really a call not just to have the head knowledge of God's word, but to love God's word, to know it, love it, and then to actually do it. 
And as parents and supporters of parents, when we learn God's word and apply it to our lives over, over time, it has a profound impact on our kids. And one reason for this that is particularly important in an R-rated culture is that as we walk in God's word, we're building evidence for our kids. Now, you, you know this, when a, when a kid hits to be a certain age, usually in high school, they begin to ask some really good and really tough questions. They ask questions like, um, can I really trust what the Bible says? How can I really trust what the Bible says? Why should I trust the Bible? Um, what about evil? There's evil in the world. How do we explain that? What, 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 what am I to think about that? What about Jesus raising from the dead? I'm really banking a lot on that here. Do I, that seems crazy. Can I, can I trust that? They ask really good, really tough questions, and that's an opportunity for us to come alongside them, for one, and help them find the answers. Even if we don't know the answers, it's an opportunity to go on that journey with them and and help them learn what they need to learn. But also, at the same time, we're going to be building evidence for them with our lives. When when the time comes that my 11-month-old, my son Richard, is asking these good and tough questions, my life is going to stand as evidence either for or against the reality of God's word. If my life looks pretty much the same as the culture around me, then that's going to tell my son, you know what, these are great stories in the Bible. Maybe they're true. Maybe they're not. But you know what, it it doesn't really matter when it comes to real life. Now if, on the other hand, my son can see a pattern of applying God's word and really learning it, and trying to walk in his word, have it in my heart over time, that's going to have a very different message that is also going to speak volumes. For better or for worse, your life is going to represent, is going to have a powerful message about the reality of God's word, and we really don't have a choice about that. The only choice that we have is what kind of message we are going to send. And this doesn't mean, please don't hear me say it, this means you need to be a Bible scholar, or you need to comprehensively understand every single word of the Bible and live it out to perfection. Your humility to be honest about what you do not know will instruct your child more than your eloquence. Your honest struggle to apply God's word to your life will instruct your child more than if they perceive you as flawless. So that's the first task, to walk in God's word. The second one is to talk of God's word. And we see this one very clearly in our passage here in verse 7. It says, you shall teach them diligently to your children and you shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. So not only should these commands be on our heart, not only should we live them out, but we should also teach them diligently to our children. We should talk of them. But note how it doesn't just say, teach them to your children and good luck with that. It actually gets into some detail about how to do that. It gives practical examples. It says, talk to them about it at home, on the road, at bedtime. And I love this because it really reflects the reality that we live in. So as a parent, yes, you have 3,000 hours a year, more or less, to influence your child, to spend with your child. But there's a lot going on during those 3,000 hours, aren't there? During those 3,000 hours, we've got meals, you've got to take care of hygiene, homework, A lot of sports are in those 3,000 hours, driving from here to there, extended family, whatever else it is that your family has baked into their schedule. And so if we wait until we have these neatly packaged time segments before we talk to our children about God's word, 
then very quickly, that 3,000 hours is going to turn into 300, 30, or 3. And so to take advantage of the hours that we have, I want to suggest three shifts in how we can approach talking to our children about God's word. First, this passage challenges us to shift from a balancing mindset to a blending mindset. We, we tend to think that we need to balance training our children with all of the other activities that we're juggling. And, and maybe there's some truth to that. Maybe some of us do need to set aside, drop an activity or two to set aside some specific time for engaging God's word as a family. But what this passage really challenges us to do is to examine our daily routines and ask the question, how can I talk to my kid about God's word on the go? And so a great place to start, if this is kind of a new thought for you, or even if you've been doing it for a while, is to start by talking to your kids about the things that they're learning during the 40 hours that they're going to spend at church. Like I said, the first row is important. Church is very important, and it's a great launching pad as parents for how to talk to your kids about God's word. And we actually have a resource for that. Uh, it's called the Parent Queue. It looks like it looks like this. We have them available at the kids' kiosk and at the kids' classrooms. And basically, what it's designed to do is keep parents, um, parents, grandparents uh, in the loop, so that they can know what is going on with their kids, what they're learning over across the way in the kids' building each Sunday, and to provide them with ideas for how to talk to their kids about that in real life. And the ideas in the parent queue actually correspond more or less with the, what we read about here in the passage. There's ideas for how to talk to them in the morning time, so when you rise, uh, drive time, kind of when you walk by the way, meal time, when you sit in your house, and bedtime, when you lie down. And so just to get really practical this morning, I'd like to share a few of these examples from the parent queue with you. So this first one is for the elementary-aged kids. Right now, over in the kids' building throughout the month of May, they're going to be learning about the topic of honesty. And here's the theme verse that they'll be learning. It says, anyone who lives without blame walks safely, but anyone who takes a crooked path will get caught. That's from Proverbs 10.9. And the story that they're focusing on either this week or next week, is when you are not truthful, you lose trust. So that's a great principle from God's word. And here's the idea for how to talk to them about it. It says, when in the car this month, ask your child the following questions. Be sure to answer them too. When has someone been dishonest with you? How did it make you feel? Pretty simple. Basic questions. And then from there, as a parent, you can connect the dots between their response and God's word and the principles in God's word. So that's just one really basic idea for talking to your kids about God's word on the go. Here's another one. This one is for preschool. So this is the, this is the parent cue that is hanging on our refrigerator or pinned to our refrigerator right now. And the topic that they're learning this month is God made me. The theme verse is the plans of the Lord stand firm forever from Psalm 33, 11. And the story throughout the month of May that they'll be looking at is about the life of Joseph in the Old Testament. And the idea, I like the idea for this month. It's basically a bath time idea. So in the bath, get some toys out and recreate the story of Joseph that the kid learned about on Sunday. Very simple, very straightforward. And even if you don't know the story of Joseph, then that's okay because on the parent queue, it tells you right where to go to read about it in the Bible so you can track along. With, with your kids. So these are, just, these are just ideas. And part of the privilege of parenting is really learning what will connect with your specific child. But notice how in each of these ideas, the emphasis moves from monologue 
to dialogue. And that's the second shift that you have there. So as we mentioned earlier, you don't need to be a Bible scholar to make an impact on your kids. You don't need to have well-rehearsed lectures to make an impact on your kids. In fact, I've, I've noticed as a parent, the longer I talk, the less attention I have and the less of an impact I seem to make. Uh, kids, kids are just like you and me. They learn more through good questions than through grand speeches. I want to share one more example with you. This one is from the junior and senior high parent queue. They're going through a series right now called Inside Out, and the theme first for that is uh, Ephesians 2.10. This is what it says. For we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. The suggestion is this. It says, model what it means uh, to be for everybody, including your teen's friends. Ask if they have any, question, uh, any friends who are struggling. Don't pry for details. Pray with them with your teen. Pray for them with your teen. Then ask if they might want to come over and hang out sometime. Hanging out in your home could be just what a struggling teen needs to experience to feel loved and encouraged. So what I really like about this idea is that it illustrates the third shift, which is a shift from intellectual to experiential. So the specific numbers vary, but experts generally agree that we retain about 10 to 20% of what we hear. And so that's today. We can expect to retain about 10 to 20% of what you're hearing today. But about 80 to 90%, we retain about 80 to 90% of what we experience firsthand. And so what that means for parenting a teenager is that if you want to teach your teen about doing good works, then you can sit down and you can talk to them about it. Or you can sit down and you can talk to them about it and you can figure out a way to do it together. You know, maybe it's something like this idea where you reach out to one of their friends and pray for one of their friends. Maybe it's someone that you know that you can pray for and reach out together. But the point is that if you can find ways for them to actually experience God's word, it's going to make a much, much deeper and longer lasting impact than if they just come to church and hear about it. So between hearing and firsthand experience, there are a few additional categories that I think are good to consider as parents and as supporters of parents. One of those is the media. The media can be a powerful tool, or media can be a powerful tool for teaching our kids. We tend to think of media in the, in the bad category, but there's actually a lot that we can do to harness that as well. I know of a family with teenagers, and they will watch the Oscars and other award shows together, and then during the commercial, they'll mute it, and they'll just talk about, okay, what values have we seen here? What values have we seen in this show? And then they'll compare that to God's values. And it's a great conversation starter for talking about what God values, talking about his word. My family, we, we are more in the Winnie the Pooh stage right now. So, uh, <laughs> but you'd be surprised what values you can draw out, even from talking about Winnie the Pooh. Um, another category is role play. And that is the category that my family lives in right now. Role play is, it's, it's king. It's what my girls always want to do. So every day when I come home from work, I am immediately assigned a character. And I am in character then for the next however, however long. They, they love it. Um, about, a, about a year ago, I told my daughters the story of David and Goliath. And it stuck. They loved it. And they wanted to act it out all the time. And so that's what we do. We act it out all the time. And for some reason, when I told them that story the first time, I included the kind of obscure detail about how 
David starts off going to the war, bringing some cheese to his brothers to give to their commanding officers. And now we, we can't leave out the cheese. If we're going to talk about David and Goliath, if we're going to act it out, we have to start with the cheese and go from there. So we'll start with the cheese and then we'll move on to the real story. And every time we do that, you know, I get to be Goliath and get hit in the head with something. Um, every time we do that, it's an opportunity for us to talk about God's faithfulness. So there are infinite ways, you know, that you can, that you can, that you can do this for your children. If your kids are older than mine, then, you know, acting out David and Goliath may not be as cute, uh, <laughs> may not be as fun, but as a parent, you have the privilege of thinking about, okay, what, what will work? What can I do to help my children really grasp these concepts? So there are infinite ways that parents can engage their children in God's word. And as a parent, you've got the privilege, you've got the honor of being able to think creatively about what will be effective for your children. But that isn't something that you need to do in isolation. You have the resource of God's people. You have us. We have each other. And when the home and the church come together with the goal of training children to become godly adults in the context of this culture that God has placed us in, it can have a very, very powerful impact on the next generation. And so with that, let's, let's take a moment. Let's just pray for that next generation. God, we thank you that you have given us, you include us in this responsibility. We thank you that, um, that you have put us in this specific time, in this specific place, and you know what resources we need um, to, to, te- to teach our children about you in this, in this context, God. And so I pray that you would just give us grace uh, to actually raise children who love you, It's not something that we can do on our own. I pray that you would give us the wisdom to do our part, but it's not something that we can do um, without you. Only you can make that happen, God. God, I pray for everyone in this room, whether parents um, or not parents, whether younger or older, God, I pray that you would help all of us uh, to to tackle this one together, that you would would help us to come together and really, really um, be a blessing to this next generation that you have entrusted to us. God, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.